This is The Guardian. Independent and investigative journalism, like Ben Robert Smith versus the media, takes time and money. The Guardian is free from commercial bias. We're not influenced by billionaire owners, by politicians or by shareholders. And unlike many news organisations, we've not put up a paywall as we believe everybody deserves access to quality journalism at a time when factual, honest reporting matters more than ever. To help us deliver this journalism, the kind of independent journalism the world needs, you can make a contribution to The Guardian. Every contribution, large or small, means we can keep investigating and exploring the critical issues of our time. And it only takes a minute. Just go to theguardian.com forward slash support full story. A warning. This episode contains strong language. You're about to hear evidence as said in court during the Ben Robert Smith defamation trial, read by voice actors. The evidence has been edited in some respects for time and ease of listening, but remains an accurate representation of those sections of the trial. I'm Ben Doherty, and from Guardian Australia, this is Ben Robert Smith versus the media. Over the past four episodes, you've heard evidence from the defamation case brought by Ben Robert Smith against three Australian newspapers for publishing articles he says falsely accuse him of committing war crimes and an act of domestic violence. The newspapers are defending their reporting as true. In this episode, the final episode of the series before the judge's decision is handed down, you'll hear closing arguments from both sides. You'll also hear from a defamation barrister about what this trial has shown us about the operation of defamation law in Australia. And you'll hear about two anonymous letters that arrived at the SAS barracks in Perth in June of 2018. Before you hear all of that, I need to give you some further context and some more detail about what's happened in court over more than 100 days of evidence. In their defence, the newspapers have presented evidence of six killings they say were unlawful and in which they allege Ben Robert Smith was complicit. In this podcast series, you've heard details of three of those six alleged killings, two at the compound known as Whiskey 108 in 2009 and one in the village of Darwan in 2012 of a man the newspapers say was named Ali Jan. Robert Smith denies complicity in any unlawful killing and says these three deaths were all lawful engagements. They were legitimate battlefield targets who were legally killed. The three other allegations of unlawful killing that form part of the newspaper's defence are these. One allegation is that Robert Smith ordered an Afghan National Army soldier to kill an unarmed prisoner during a raid in Kazaruzgan in 2012. A second allegation involves an Australian soldier known to the court as Person 66, who was alleged to have been ordered by Robert Smith to kill a person under control, a puck, as a blooding during a mission in a village called Siachau in the same year. Person 66 was called to give evidence in this trial, but he refused to answer questions on the grounds of potential self-incrimination. 
His lawyer said the accusation against him was that of murder. It sounds similar, but this is separate to the blooding allegation you've heard about last episode at Whiskey 108, when Person 4 was said to have been ordered by Robert Smith to shoot a puck, an elderly Afghan man allegedly found hiding in a tunnel. And the third allegation involves an Afghan teenager who'd been found in a Toyota Hilux during an Australian SAS mission to Faisal. It's alleged that the teenager was pucked and then handed to Ben Robert Smith's patrol for questioning. A witness for the newspapers alleged in court that in the days after that mission, Robert Smith told him of the teenager, I shot that cunt in the head, blew his brains out. It was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Another soldier accused of killing an unarmed prisoner alongside Robert Smith that day, known as Person 56, also refused to answer questions on the grounds of self-incrimination. Ben Robert Smith denies any unlawful involvement in any unlawful killings at any time. An aside, but one that is significant in this case, is that Person 56 and Person 66 refusing to answer questions brings to three, alongside Person 4, the number of Australian soldiers accused of committing murder by the newspapers, but who refuse to answer questions on the grounds of self-incrimination. Each of those three soldiers was subpoenaed to give evidence for the newspapers, and each refused to answer questions about what they saw and what they allegedly did on particular missions in Afghanistan, telling the court they risked incriminating themselves. The judge did not compel them to give evidence, and nothing in this trial can be read into that decision. Now, the reason you're not hearing further details about these other allegations in this podcast series is because there was less focus on these allegations at the trial. There was less evidence led about them, and they're not in themselves likely to be key to the newspaper's attempt to prove their reporting is true. Separate to the alleged war crimes, the newspapers have made an allegation of domestic violence as part of their defence. The court heard evidence on this claim in significant detail, in part because it was categorically different to the other allegations, but also because, as the newspapers argued, if true, it would be indicative of character. One of the defamatory imputations alleged by Ben Robert Smith is that this allegation by the newspapers casts him as a hypocrite, publicly supporting domestic violence campaigner Rosie Batty while in private assaulting a woman. Robert Smith told the court the allegation of domestic violence was acutely hurtful because it damaged his sense of who he was. There was detailed evidence heard too about Robert Smith's marriage. The newspapers argue the evidence from his former wife, Emma Roberts, raises broader questions about Robert Smith's credibility. They argue that if Robert Smith is found to have lied about his marriage and when he separated from Emma, then Justice Basanko needs to decide if he's also willing to lie about other matters before the court. Robert Smith denies that he lied about his separation to Emma and maintains he told the truth, that they were separated when he started his relationship with Person 17. In his evidence, Robert Smith told the court his ex-wife was extremely bitter. He said, She has done things along the way that have been detrimental to my family and particularly to me. 
because she thinks it will hurt me. The newspapers have focused their attention and their evidence on proving the alleged unlawful killings at Darwan and at Whiskey 108. And the disputed evidence about what happened during both of those raids became focal points during closing arguments as each side attempted to convince the judge, Justice Anthony Basanko, for the final time that their version of events is the one to be believed. Given the dramatic nature of this trial and the extraordinary testimony before the court, the closing submissions from both sides are subdued. Being a judge-only trial, the remaining arguments are legalistic, they're technical, and they're filled with references to previous court judgments. But they're also revelatory from both sides about where they feel their strongest arguments are and where they feel the other side's arguments are weakest. Your Honour may recall that over a year ago, when I opened the respondent's case, I said that at least in relation to the key allegations... The newspaper's lawyer, Nicholas Owens SC, is on his feet first. He begins his closing submissions by accusing the witnesses for Robert Smith, and Robert Smith himself, of dishonesty. We submit that, in effect, Your Honour is at least the significant parts of the case confronted with a dilemma, which is, someone is lying. The newspapers point to a number of instances that they argue shows Robert Smith's, and I quote, consciousness of guilt about what allegedly happened at Whiskey 108. One of those instances relates to two anonymous letters that were allegedly posted in 2018. And to understand this line of argument, I need to take you back to the newspaper's evidence. Do you solemnly and sincerely declare and affirm that the evidence you shall give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. One of the few named witnesses in this trial, John McLeod, sits joylessly in the witness box, ruddy-faced and uncomfortable. McLeod appears under force of subpoena for the newspapers, and he tells the court he first met Ben Robert Smith, newly invested with the Victoria Cross, in 2011. At the time, I was employed as a security and safety manager at a five-star hotel. Mr. Robert Smith and his wife were guests. I saw their name on the guests list and they weren't VIP. I knew who Mr. Robert Smith was. So I, I arranged for him to be upgraded and some amenities sent up. McLeod, who's a former Queensland police officer, says he ended up working for Robert Smith and his then wife, Emma as something of a fixer for the family. They were new to Brisbane. They were purchasing a house. They didn't know anybody. I knew a lot of people. So if they needed, you know, mundane stuff like plumbers or gardeners, electricians or security people, I'd get a phone call and I was more than happy to get people out to have a look in their houses. Picking up, organising Ben's medals on occasions. By this, McLeod means transporting medals for events. Robert Smith was attending. A lot of mundane, just just mundane things. It's, it's a bit of everything. And was the relationship between you and the Robert Smiths purely professional? In other words, 
asking you to do jobs or was there a friendship aspect to it as well? No, I believe we were friends. Robert Smith tells the court that McLeod put himself forward as a private investigator. McLeod is the person who followed person 17 to a termination clinic at Ben Robert Smith's request to check she was having an abortion. McLeod also gave evidence Robert Smith employed him as a pretend barman at a party to eavesdrop on employees of Channel 7 where Robert Smith was a regional manager. Robert Smith was never asked about this. In June of 2018, McLeod says he organises to meet up with Robert Smith. There was a coffee shop in Bunnings, North Lakes, from my memory. North Lakes, about an hour north of the Brisbane CBD. McLeod thinks they picked the spot because it was about halfway between each of their houses. I had something to return to RS. We sat down at the coffee shop, general chat. He was saying that he was busy, he was under the pump, which wasn't unusual. He had a blue folder in his hand and he, he, he said, I want you, I'm under the pump, can you post these for me? The names are inside and I'll give you the addresses tonight. McLeod says in the blue folder, there are four envelopes and two scraps of paper. On these scraps of paper, they had people's names, their ranks, and an arrow which said, insert address here. Robert Smith disputes McLeod's recollection. He says they didn't meet at Bunnings, he didn't have a blue folder, and he didn't ask McLeod to post any letters. He does admit at some point in time, and it's not clear when from the evidence, to handing McLeod two pieces of paper saying, insert address. In court, Robert Smith is shown the pieces of paper he handed to John McLeod. He admits this is his handwriting. He's asked about the pieces of paper by his lawyer, Bruce McClintock. What was your intention in writing insert address on each of those, Mr Robert Smith? Well, for that purpose, I wanted John to get me their personal addresses and realising that he would probably get the information at various times, the pieces of paper were just ripped up. It wasn't something that was done over a long period of time. It was done during a conversation with Mr McLeod. Robert Smith says he passed McLeod the pieces of paper because at this point in time, he says he was worried the media and some in the SAS were trying to intercept his electronic communications. June 2018 is when the first newspaper articles at the centre of this defamation case the stories about Leonidas, who we now know to be Robert Smith, start appearing. Robert Smith, believing these false stories about him were being leaked illegally by members of the regiment who disliked him, tells the court he wanted the addresses to surveil these soldiers, to find out if they were talking to the media or colluding with each other. He says he wanted evidence to take to the Defence Force. Robert Smith says McLeod never ended up supplying him with the addresses. But McLeod says Robert Smith did come back to him with addresses. McLeod tells the court, under a certificate against self-incrimination, that Robert Smith called him later that same day, after the meeting at Bunnings. He rang me that night and he gave me two addresses. He advised me not to post two of them. Out of the four envelopes, McLeod says Robert Smith instructs him to post two of them. He says those two envelopes are to be sent to a soldier known as Person 18. You might remember Person 18 from the Whiskey 108 episode. 
He was a key witness in the newspaper's case, and his evidence is in direct contradiction to that of Robert Smith's. McLeod says he writes Person 18's address on the two envelopes. The following morning I was being picked up. I had to go to my auntie's house to pick up a family heirloom. The gentleman that picked me up, because he had a ute, the thing I was picking up was a very old wardrobe, a very heavy old wardrobe. I went out to the car and when I was in the car, I went back. I said to him, I've got to get these envelopes. I'm going to post them for Ben. I grabbed the envelopes again, went back out to the car and put them on the dashboard of the vehicle, of the ute. McLeod goes into great detail. It's a sprawling account from a man who looks and sounds nervous on the stand. We proceeded down to my auntie's house. On the way, the driver who's diabetic, he needed to eat. We remembered a fish and chip shop that was on the river. We both remembered, I'd remembered it from my youth, and he knew it was quite a famous fish and chip shop where he could eat fish and chip shops, fish and chips on the river. We couldn't find it. At times, there's so much irrelevant detail, it can be hard to understand where McLeod's going with this and exactly what he's trying to say. But eventually, McLeod says, he posts the envelopes over the border in New South Wales in the town of Tweedheads. The driver said, there's a post box, post these things for RS. I got out and posted them. I received it at around midday on the 12th of June at the squadron pigeonholes. Person 18 is giving evidence under subpoena for the newspapers. He's at Campbell Barracks near Perth in Western Australia when the letters arrive in June of 2018. I've come out from training at the range. I was heading into the squadron. Oh, I'm sorry, my troop office. I went past the pigeonholes just collecting the mail and I found that one letter. That's where I opened it opened it up. Person 18 says the envelope has a handwritten address on it and nothing to indicate who sent it. There's no return address. The letter stated words to the effect of you and others have colluded to tell lies to the media and for the inquiry. The inquiry. This is the secret war crimes investigation that will result ultimately in the Brereton report. Many soldiers were being questioned by the Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force at this time in 2018. You are to approach the inquiry and change what you have said. The author wrote that they had an extensive knowledge of my military and operational history. They also stated that I had till the end of the month to change my statement, otherwise I'd go down, signed off as a friend of the regiment. In cross-examination, it's revealed that Person 18 hasn't recalled the letter in its entirety. Robert Smith's barrister, Arthur Moses SC, reads out the rest of the letter. We are very aware of your murderous actions over many tours of Afghanistan, and we have specific mission details, dates and witnesses who are now willing to expose you to the authorities so you are criminally investigated. Just like when you participate in the execution of two pucks from the Taliban's makeshift medical compound following the Battle of Tizak. A PUC, you'll remember, is an SAS acronym for a person under control. You didn't refer to that in your evidence you gave on Friday, correct? That's correct. Did you remember on Friday, did you have a recollection on Friday, that the letter had made an allegation that you had participated in the execution of two PUCs from the Taliban's makeshift medical compound following the Battle of Tizak? 
I knew it had made some allegations, but I didn't, I hadn't remembered the content of the letter word for word. Person 18 admits he's embarrassed to have to tell the court about the allegations made against him in the letter. He says they are not true. He says he was never even at the makeshift medical compound, as the letter alleges. But the contents of the letter have such detail that Person 18 says he's rattled. I just spent the last few years working in a very sensitive area within the regiment. Receiving a letter handwritten with my personal details on the outside was alarming. When I opened the first letter and read it, the, the threat in there was concerning because, as I said, I'd just finished, i just completed a, an interview with the inquiry and I had been notified that I was going for a second interview. It also stated details of my military history and, as I said, due to the area that I w- worked in, I was extremely concerned and the threat I took seriously. I had a concern for my safety and that of my family's. Person 18 says he immediately seeks out his commanding officer and hands the letter over to him. He says he provides a statement to the Australian Federal Police. The court hears two days after that first letter, on June 14, the Sydney Morning Herald publishes an article about a mafia-style threat to witnesses assisting the war crimes inquiry. Nobody is named, but the article says making such a threat is a criminal offence. This article is not at issue in this defamation trial, but on the same day it's published, Person 18 receives another letter. He says he doesn't open this one and immediately hands it to his superiors. John McLeod says about 10 days after the article in the Herald is published, he meets up with Robert Smith in Milton, a suburb north of the river in Brisbane although Robert Smith denies this meeting ever took place. When I arrived, I parked my vehicle and Ben was standing there on the footpath with one of his friends. As I got out of the vehicle, he walked towards me and yelled, no phones, no phones, no phones. Okay, I turned my phone off and left it in the car. Uh, Ben approached me. We walked together. We then walked to the side of the building, just the two of us. Ben asked me if I'd seen the media. I said, no, what media? He said, they're saying that the letters were threats. I'm saying, what letters? McLeod says that Robert Smith continues to deny the letters are threats. He was just saying, they're saying that the threats, it's in the the Herald. They're not fucking threats. It's just a touch-up. At first, McLeod says he's confused. I said, I didn't understand what he was talking about. And then sort of the penny dropped and I basically just looked at him. I said, if you put me in the frame, if you've compromised me somewhere, you really get me fucking a good lawyer. He said, oh, there's no need for that. I said, mate, if you've done something stupid, put your hand up. Put your hand up for it because the cover-up's 10 times worse than the offence. No, 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 no. All you've got to say is just tell him you're a supporter of mine and you were sick of the way I was being treated. I said, I'm not saying that. And he said, no, 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 it'll be all right. They're not threats. Just tell them you're a supporter of mine. You, you said you sent the letters because you were sick, sick of the way I was being treated. I basically, uh, I didn't. Basically, I just looked at him and I said, fuck that, you weak dog, and I walked away.
McLeod tells the court that after this dispute in Milton, he has no further contact with Ben Robert Smith. It's put to McLeod in cross-examination that all of his evidence of Robert Smith giving him the envelopes is false, which he denies. Now, he didn't give you any envelopes, Mr McLeod, I suggest. Yes, he did. There were no letters in the envelopes. You agree with that or not? I don't know what was in the envelopes. He didn't ring through with any addresses, did he? Yes, he did. I want to suggest to you that the evidence you gave was false in its entirety. I can quote it to you, but I'll try and take the short route. It simply didn't happen. It did. It happened. John McLeod isn't the only witness to give evidence about these letters. After the story alleging the mafia-style threats was in the papers, Ben Robert Smith's then-wife, Emma Roberts, says she has a conversation with him. I remember talking to Ben out on our front steps after a story had hit the press that regiment members had been sent letters in the mail. Emma Roberts is giving evidence for the newspapers. She tells Nicholas Owens as soon as she heard about the threats, she thought immediately they'd come from Robert Smith. And what was, as best as you can recall, what was the conversation you had with Mr Robert Smith outside after those articles had appeared? When I read the article, I looked at Ben and asked him what he had done. Do you remember the words that you used? Direct words, if you can remember. I said, what the fuck have you done? And did he say anything in response to that? Yes, we had a conversation about it. Do you remember the words that he used? Yes, he told me that he had written the letters had saved them on a USB and printed them at the Seven office, had sealed them in the envelopes and given them to John McLeod to post. He said that John McLeod had driven over the border and posted them. Emma Roberts then tells the court something else. I remember in the week prior to seeing that article in the press and Ben telling me that he had written those letters, that he came through the door at home with a grey shopping bag. And did you see what was in the grey shopping bag? What do you remember was in the bag? Reflex paper, a packet of envelopes and a packet of gloves. Emma Roberts tells the court that in the lead-up to this discussion, she says happened on the front steps of the family home, her husband had questions about how the postal system worked. He had asked me what the PO box was for the regiment. It was the same post office box that we used when we lived there. He had asked me how Australia Post had worked. Ben became quite paranoid about the stamps. He had asked me to ask Danielle Scott how the mail system worked because she once worked for them. Danielle Scott is Emma's best friend. In an affidavit for this trial, Scott said that Robert Smith had asked her about postage and whether letters could be traced based on stamps or on barcodes. Robert Smith says the conversation with Scott happened later and was in relation to another anonymous letter that he'd received, not anything he'd sent. Ben Robert Smith denies all that Emma Roberts has said. He says he didn't come home with a grey shopping bag and denies ever having those contents in his possession. Nor did he ever have a conversation with Emma about the letters after they were in the media. Robert Smith isn't asked about the conversations about the P.O. Box. There's fierce dispute in this evidence about who wrote and who sent the letters Person 18 received. 
John McLeod says he posted letters given to him by Ben Robert Smith after being given the envelopes and the addresses. Emma Roberts says her then-husband had told her he had written the letters and instructed John McLeod to send them. Person 18 says he doesn't know who sent him the letters. Robert Smith tells his lawyer, Bruce McClintock, he had nothing to do with any threatening letters at all. You're aware that Person 18 seems to have received some form of letter? I am. Were you responsible for that letter? No. I think he may have received even two letters. Were you responsible for the second one? No. Robert Smith's lawyers insinuate that it's McLeod who's responsible for the letters, although that's never put to McLeod in cross-examination. I take it when you were discussing these soldiers with Mr McLeod, you expressed your views about them? I did. Yes. In strong terms? I did. I told Mr McLeod over a number of occasions through 2017 and into 2018 my views on a lot of those individuals and others, noting that I was well aware that journalists were outright looking to take, uh, to bring me down. That drove my, my views and decision making. Did you ever ask Mr McLeod to threaten anyone? No. Did you give him a threatening letter? No. To post? Did you give him any envelopes to post? No. Did you see Mr McLeod, or or do you recall seeing him after June 2018? Yes, I believe we met once or twice. Did you ever ask him whether he'd sent a threatening letter? No. Robert Smith denies writing any letters, but you'll recall he did admit to asking John McLeod for the addresses of certain individuals. Robert Smith tells the newspaper's lawyers in cross-examination he wanted those addresses so he could pass them on to a private investigator in Western Australia. Why did you ask a private investigator based in Queensland to find out the addresses of SES members in Perth? Because he told me he had contacts with all of the police agencies and said that he could probably get them. The newspaper's lawyer, Nicholas Owens, begins to pick at Robert Smith's evidence. What did you understand the use would be of the address once you had obtained it? It would be a good starting point for them to be able to identify these people, either colluding with each other or talking to the media directly. How would knowing their address tell you if they were talking to the media directly? Well, then you can start to work up a profile to follow them, to surveil them. You understand, don't you, that the home addresses of members of the SAS are very strictly guarded secrets? Yes. And that's an important matter, isn't it, for ensuring the security of the person involved? Yes. But notwithstanding that, you wished to surreptitiously obtain the home addresses of these people that you didn't like. Is that correct? No, it's not that I didn't like them. It was because with all the available information, it was clear to me that they were the most likely individuals talking to the media and making these false allegations. The newspapers argue these letters, which they allege were written by Robert Smith, are an example of his, and I quote, consciousness of guilt about what happened at Whiskey 108. They allege Robert Smith knew what the case against him was in regards to Whiskey 108, and he was worried about what people would be saying to the Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force, the War Crimes Inquiry. And he needed to prevent other people telling that inquiry what actually happened. Owens puts this to Robert Smith in cross-examination. The first sentence was words to the effect of... You and others have worked together to spread lies and rumours to the media and the IGADF inquiry. 
Now, do you agree that in June 2018, that was an accurate statement of your state of mind? I don't know what was in that letter and I don't know. Can I see the letter, please? No. I mean, I I don't know what you just read out. I don't know if it's the letter. I'm putting to you that the first sentence of the letter was, in substance, you and others have worked together to spread lies and rumours to the media and the IGADF inquiry. Do you agree that in June 2018, that accurately reflected your state of mind? That statement, whatever it is, does reflect my state of mind, yes. You tried to intimidate Person 18 into withdrawing his evidence before the IGADF because you were concerned he had been telling the truth about you. No, that's completely false. In his closing arguments, Nicholas Owens lays out why the newspapers believe Robert Smith wrote these letters and why it's important to their case, saying these letters support other arguments and evidence the newspapers have put forward. We say that he, in effect by his conduct, has shown he disbelieves his own case and needed to prevent other people from saying what actually happened in order to prevail. We say, therefore, it is an important and powerful piece of circumstantial evidence that can be used positively against Mr Robert Smith in determining the Whiskey 108 issue. Robert Smith's lawyers say this whole argument about consciousness of guilt is a distraction from the newspaper's case. Introduced like poison into the veins of a body to contort and twist, in Arthur Moses' words. Moses argues it's a diversion from the allegations the newspapers have to prove in this case. He says there was no intimidation by Robert Smith of anybody. There's no explanation offered by the newspapers why Robert Smith would randomly send an anonymous letter. Moses says, and I quote, that is not Mr Robert Smith's character. He's not someone who cowardly makes allegations from the shadows. He takes actions under his own name. Owens makes another argument in the newspaper's closing submissions about the role of memory. For some of the key allegations of war crimes that happened over a decade ago, Owens argues that fine detail may have been affected by the passage of time, but the fundamental detail of significant events has been accurately recalled. There's a difference, in other words, between being able to recall what you had for breakfast on a particular day 13 years ago and being able to recall the execution of a prisoner. Owens has a focus on this because critical to the newspaper's case is the oral evidence told to the court by their witnesses to sway the balance of this case in their favour. And he argues that despite variation in some of those smaller details, the recollection of those significant events has been strikingly similar. The consistency in memories of their witnesses, the newspapers say, means they are not confected. They're not tainted by salacious rumours or jealousy spreading throughout the SAS, as Robert Smith's lawyers have argued throughout this case. For example, with the Darwan allegations, Owens argues that the two Afghan witnesses largely corroborate Person 4's evidence of a man being kicked from a cliff. And in relation to Whiskey 108, he argues that the memory of five witnesses of men coming out of the tunnel remains constant and consistent. 
they either weren't exposed to any rumour or much rumour, or if they were, they were able to distinguish between rumour and memory and somehow develop a little more detail. There was no correspondence between the rumour they heard and the evidence they gave. After Owens's closing remarks, his final attempt to sway the judge in the newspaper's favour, we hear from Robert Smith's barrister, Arthur Moses, SC. Your Honour, this trial, which has lasted over 100 days, has been called a great many things. The trial of the century, a proxy war crimes trial, and an attack on the freedom of the press. Moses is animated. And as he addresses the court, he attempts to refocus attention away from the wider implications of this trial and return it to the reputation of the man at its centre. It is none of these. It is a case which has been brought because the respondents chose to defame Mr Robert Smith in a series of articles which were published on the 9th of June 2018, the 10th of June 2018 and the 11th of August 2018. Moses argues that to side with the newspapers is to believe in a series of cascading, improbable events. The simple fact is this, Your Honour. The respondent's case is built on imprecise testimony, contradictory evidence, even among their own witnesses, which do not stack up even against documents which it is said their witnesses have had a hand in preparing at the time of the alleged incidents. Conjecture and speculation that invite this court to make the most serious findings that could be made by a court in relation to the conduct of a member of the Australian Defence Force, which will have both domestic and international repercussions. When he says documents that their own witnesses have had a hand in preparing, Moses here is talking about patrol debriefs, written contemporaneously that don't mention war crimes and that reflect lawful engagements in line with Robert Smith's case. These are debriefs written by the newspaper's own soldier witnesses. Moses argues these contemporaneous defence documents are far more reliable than the memories of soldiers of events from more than a decade ago, which he argues have been clouded by time and fuelled by rumour. The records of the Australian Defence Force of missions are more likely to be a reliable source of truth than the memory of witnesses. Moses' final argument is the same argument he's been running from the beginning of this trial. How did Ben Robert Smith, this great and valiant and decorated Australian soldier, metamorphose into a killer? Apparently, according to the respondents, he is a person who switches from great acts of gallantry, operating within the rules of engagement on multiple tours to the observations of his colleagues, including those who the respondents have called, to a person who for no apparent reason breaches the rules of engagement to kill or be complicit in the killing of detained Afghan males on six different occasions. What possible motive is there for Mr Robert Smith to have determined to kill or be involved in the killing of these particular six Afghan males? There is none. The case, with all due respect, is a nonsense and quite frankly embarrassing. I'd like to thank Council for their submissions. I'd like to thank the Commonwealth for their assistance from time to time during the course of this case. I reserve my judgment. Parties will be advised when I'm in a position to hand it down. Adjourn. Adjourn.
Quietly, Ben Robert Smith's long-running defamation trial is over. For a trial steeped in drama and in pathos that's seen more than 100 days of extraordinary allegation and stunning evidence, it's a prosaic conclusion. Justice Anthony Basanko will retire to write one of the most consequential defamation judgments this country has heard in many years. We'll be back after this. And so, after months of evidence, what does Justice Anthony Basanko actually have to decide? You'll recall that Ben Robert Smith says the articles the newspapers wrote about him contained 14 imputations, 14 defamatory meanings that have damaged his reputation. These imputations include that he committed war crimes, including murder, that he committed an act of domestic violence, that he assaulted unarmed Afghans, and that he was a bully. You'll also remember that the newspapers bear the burden of proof in this case. They have to convince the judge that what they published about Ben Robert Smith was substantially true. Now, substantial truth isn't the only defence the newspapers are relying on. There's another defence they're using, and that's contextual truth. The way contextual truth works is, if you can prove one of the more damaging imputations is substantially true, then you can rely on contextual truth to defend any other similar or less damaging imputations. And what that essentially means for this case is that if the newspapers have presented enough evidence to convince the judge that Ben Robert Smith committed or was involved in just one act of unlawful killing, then the newspapers can argue that proving the truth of any of the other imputations is no longer necessary because, true or not, they do no further harm to his reputation. To explain how this works. I'm uh, Dr Matt Collins, Case KC, which doesn't sound right yet, does it? Dr Matt Collins, King's Counsel, is the president of the Australian Bar Association and a defamation barrister. So with contextual truth, I think of it like a set of scales. So an imputation of a war crime, you know, might carry a 100 kilogram weight. An imputation of, you know, signing a false signature on a document might carry 50 grams. The judge places all the imputations found to be true on one side of the scales and the imputations that haven't been found to be true on the other side. If they cause the scales to rebalance, then contextual truth fails. If they don't cause it to rebalance, so the matters that the media has proved to be true are so significant that they swamp the bits that haven't been proved to be true, then contextual truth succeeds. For example, if the judge finds that Robert Smith has committed a war crime then that is the imputation that carries the most weight and contextual truth succeeds. On the other hand, if the judge finds Robert Smith hasn't committed any war crimes, but he's a bully, then the contextual truth defence will have failed. And this is all decided on the balance of probabilities. We don't talk about it in terms of numbers, but it's really, on, we should, it's 51-49. But... The, the law in this area directs judges and juries that where allegations are serious, very serious, like allegations of murder or war crimes, the degree of mental persuasion or satisfaction is commensurate to the seriousness of the allegations. And so although the standard, this is, there's a lot of academic criticism of whether this test makes any sense at all. I, I'm a lawyer, I sort of pretend I understand it, but I'm not 
not convinced I do. Um, but the test is the balance of probabilities. But because the allegations are very serious, you must be very firmly satisfied that they've been made out to the balance of probabilities. We turn then to the ramifications of the decision at the heart of this trial. Who wins? Who loses? Who will be out of pocket? We're operating on hypotheticals here, which makes it somewhat speculative. If the newspapers lose... So in Australian defamation law since 2005, there's been a cap on damages. Originally, it was $250,000 for what's called non-economic loss, so for hurt feelings, damage to reputation. Over time, that's gone up with inflation. It's currently just a a tad under $500,000. Robert Smith's lawyers argue he is also entitled to aggravated damages, which are uncapped. So in Ben Robert Smith's case, uh, if Ben Robert Smith wins and can establish that the media has done something to aggravate his damages, then that cap doesn't apply. Aggravated damages takes into account the behaviour of the media organisation, how they acted at the time of publication, whether there was a failure to apologise if necessary, and how they acted during the proceedings. And so we saw that um, in the case, case I was in, in Rebel Wilson's case. She won, she established aggravated damages by Bauer Media, and therefore the damages that were awarded exceeded the cap, the damages cap. In the Rebel Wilson case, a judge decided aggravated damages could be awarded that exceeded the cap because the judge found the publisher had failed to properly investigate allegations made by an anonymous source and that they knew the meanings conveyed by the articles were false, but they published anyway. These damages were reduced on appeal. And it would no doubt be something that is argued in this case. If Ben Robert Smith wins, he would obviously be entitled to damages at the top of the range. And if he establishes aggravated damages, the cap would not apply. And so it could could well be in record or close to record territory. What happens if Ben Robert Smith loses this case? That is, if the newspapers win? The rule of thumb in a defamation case, as in all litigation, is loser pays. So the the, the winner gets their costs. But in in defamation, and, and in defamation cases actually, the presumption is that the loser pays all of the costs of the um, successful party. Now the third option. The newspapers win on some imputations, but lose on others. Ben Robert Smith may be entitled to some damages, and there'll be some complicated accounting involved that takes into account any reasonable offers to settle by either party during the mandatory mediation that will have occurred before the trial or made along the way. If the newspapers were willing to pay more money to Robert Smith during mediation than the judge thinks he's now entitled to, in other words, Robert Smith partially wins, Robert Smith may still have to pay the newspaper's costs. But Robert Smith's defamation trial does not exist inside a vacuum, and the broader context is potentially even more momentous. The Office of the Special Investigator was set up to investigate allegations of war crimes against Australian soldiers in Afghanistan following the release of the Brereton Report. This is the secret war crimes inquiry that handed down its findings in 2020. And the Australian Federal Police and the newly established Office of the Special Investigator have been investigating the allegations contained in that report. 
We know that interim briefs of evidence have been sent by police to the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions. We don't know much more than that, to whom they relate or what crimes are alleged. This defamation trial is unrelated to that. The judge in this civil proceeding could make a finding in favour of the newspapers, finding the newspapers reporting that Robert Smith committed war crimes is substantially true, and it would have no direct bearing on any broader criminal investigation. And the prosecutor could then decide that, despite this judge's finding, there's not enough evidence to bring a criminal prosecution for which a conviction requires proof beyond reasonable doubt. And the countervailing question is worth posing here. What would happen if Robert Smith wins his defamation case against the newspapers and then at some point in the future he is charged and found guilty of war crimes in a criminal court? Colin says that if that scenario did eventuate, it wouldn't be the first time that someone has won a defamation case and then it's later been found the media was telling the truth. Well, we've had some strange examples in the deep distant past. I mean, can you believe this? Uh, Liberace, probably most people don't even know who Liberace is. Liberace was a very flamboyant pianist who wore fur coats and enormous diamond rings and um, was obviously gay. Uh, He sued over a review of one of his shows in the 1950s in the English courts uh, on the basis that it had accused him of being gay. So the jury came back and found for Liberace and awarded him, I think, £6,000, which in today's dollars is about half a million dollars. And somehow he persuaded the jury that he wasn't gay. Now, the man clearly was and has emerged later in life. Another example is uh, the author Geoffrey Archer, the English author Geoffrey Archer, who won his defamation case against the media back in, I think, the 80s. Uh, but was subsequently convicted of perjury and had to pay the money back. Um, So it's not an unknown thing for there to be differences in outcomes between defamation cases and things that subsequently occur. We're not suggesting Robert Smith has lied in this case. He's entitled to mount a defamation action if he believes his reputation has been harmed by false reporting. We also want to make clear that Robert Smith has not been the subject of any criminal charges and there's no suggestion he will be. While we wait for the judgment, there are still many outstanding questions about what this defamation trial of the century has shown us about defamation law and how it operates in this country. I would posit that Australia's defamation laws are failing everybody. They're expensive and slow, And that means that for ordinary people whose lives are ruined in a heartbeat by something said about them on social media or written about them in a newspaper or on a current affairs television program, they have no no ready remedy available to them. It's too expensive, it's out of their reach, it takes too long, it's too stressful. But it also fails, I would argue, the serious investigative and public interest journalism because the sorts of people who are the targets of serious public interest journalism are not ordinary people. They're people who have access to resources and for whom the cost and expense of a defamation trial is less of a deterrent. And so you see, most, you think about most of the big defamation cases we've seen in Australia over the past generation, the plaintiffs are overwhelmingly public figures with big egos and deep pockets. 
we don't see so many of the big cases brought by ordinary everyday people because they just can't afford to access it. And so I think we see that in all sorts of cases which have been litigated in the Australian landscape over the last generation. The Ben Robert Smith defamation trial is an interesting example of this problem. Robert Smith arguably would not have been able to fund this defamation trial on his own as an ordinary person. It's only because he's funded by someone with very deep pockets, that is, Kerry Stokes and Seven West Media, that his defamation trial has even made it to this courtroom. But many would argue that Robert Smith is a public figure, deserving of scrutiny. So forget about the law for a minute and just... Put yourself, put your citizen's hat on, right? Your hat as a, a, a thinking Australian citizen. In light of what has come out in the trial, does anyone really think that this wasn't worthwhile journalism? I mean, does anyone really think that the public didn't have a right to know that these allegations were out there? Now, in the defamation law world, if Ben Robert Smith wins the case, the answer will be no, you shouldn't have been allowed to know any of that. I think that does highlight where the law has got it wrong because, uh, and, and really, whoever wins or loses, the fact that there's been a trial of this duration with these eye-watering costs in relation to issues that the public must have had a right to know about, I think highlights a problem with the balance in defamation law. This case has also highlighted the difference between proving something to a level of responsible publication against what a court might accept is substantially true. Now, you might think, well, what's wrong with that? The media should get its facts right. But the Ben Robert Smith case shows just how difficult that can be in cases involving serious public interest investigative journalism, you know, particularly where the media is relying on information provided by whistleblowers or confidential sources or leaked documents which might not be admissible in a court or hearsay evidence or uh, just, just matters which powerful people would prefer not to see the light of day. The newspapers argue the articles at the centre of this trial were neither feckless nor sensationalist. The newspapers say that over years, the journalists who wrote these articles, Chris Masters, Nick McKenzie and David Rowe, slowly and meticulously built their case, painstakingly investigating allegations of war crimes by Australian Special Forces soldiers. You know, it was serious investigative journalism and the trial, the defamation trial, will turn on arcane principles of whether imputations were conveyed and where, whether the um, serious allegations could ultimately be proved to be true in a court of law. Um, that's a chasm between journalism's journalistic standards and legal standards. And Collins argues that the court is not an appropriate place to be litigating the issues that have emerged in the publication of these articles. I mean, in effect, the Ben Robert Smith case is a form of war crimes tribunal, you know, masquerading as a defamation court. And defamation courts are not really well suited to the adjudication of these sorts of issues. Because in a, in a prosecution, uh, prosecution would bring all of the evidence it had against the defendant. The defendant would be entitled to the uh, presumption of innocence and to the privilege against self-incrimination and entitled to the right to silence, not have to go in the witness box at all. All of those things are swept away in a defamation case. Whatever the outcome of this sprawling, complex trial, the Robert Smith defamation battle has highlighted the tension between public interest journalism 
and an individual's right to their reputation. I think this case has got very serious implications for public interest journalism, whatever the outcome. Um, so if the if the media loses, um, it will certainly be something that you know that they will think very seriously about before they publish stories of this gravity in the future. I think if they lose, it means we will see less serious public interest journalism. But I think even if the media wins, even if the media were to have a comprehensive win, this case has not been good for the health of public interest investigative journalism in Australia because the cost and distraction of the exercise is such that it must be exercising the minds of editors of our uh, serious media organisations when confronted with public interest stories that are going to be very difficult to be to prove to be true. Now, some people might say, what does that matter? If the media can't prove what they're publishing is true, they shouldn't be publishing at all. I would simply say, think about um, the really good things that public interest investigative journalism has done for uh, our polity and th- that of other countries. Think about the Moonlight State program on uh, Four Corners uh, back in the 1980s that led to the Fitzgerald inquiry to weed out corruption in Queensland. Think about Watergate in the United States. These are things that the public absolutely had a right to know and bringing it to the light of day was very much to the betterment of, of democracy and the health of our communities. The decision from Justice Pasanko could take up to a year. I have uh, I have enormous respect for Justice Pasanko, and I've argued cases before Justice Pasanko, and I know him to be a, a judge of the highest integrity who will, as any judge would, but he will approach this task with the seriousness that um, it merits. Beyond this defamation trial, we're left with bigger questions about how Australia is to view its defence forces and two decades of war in Afghanistan. This trial has shone a glaring, at times unflattering light on the usually secretive SAS, revealing a troubled institution, factionalised and fractious, and deeply riven by internecine fighting over decorations and medals, in thrall on some evidence, to a warrior culture steeped in violence. And the brutal reality of Australia's decades-long war in Afghanistan has been laid bare. The strategic drift of the mission, the compromises and complexities of the fight against an elusive and ill-defined enemy, and the irredeemable toll taken on the handful of soldiers sent time and time again to the sharp end of a dirty, dangerous war. Australian lives have been lost, others altered irreparably. Members of Australia's military stand accused of committing war crimes. There remains the possibility of criminal charges and trials to follow. There are questions too of command responsibility to be answered. How high up does accountability for any alleged wrongdoing lie? Should those who bore the burden of fighting this war on the ground answer alone? Or should those who sent them, who gave them their orders, the officers, the officials, the ministers, be called to account too. More broadly still, the mission in Afghanistan to bring peace and prosperity to a land that has known little but conflict for generations has been lost. The country is back in the hands of an unreformed, oppressive Taliban. The people of Afghanistan suffered under 20 years of war 
and for no peace. They suffer still. I'm Ben Doherty, and this has been Ben Robert Smith versus the media. You'll hear from us again when the judgment's handed down. Ben Robert Smith versus the media featured Jason Chong as the voice of Ben Robert Smith. Nicholas Owens SC was voiced by Colin Smith, Bruce McClintock SC by Dane Carson, Arthur Moses SC by Barry Lee Pierce. Featuring Rod Chambers as John McLeod, Nizreen Amin as Emma Roberts, and Chris Huntley Turner as Person 18. This episode was reported by me, Ben Doherty, and Ellen Lee Beater. Produced by Miles Herbert and Mel Chun. Series producer, Ellen Leebeater, with production assistance from Alison Chan, Joey Watson, Karishma Luthria, and Rafka Tuma. Sound design and mixing by Camilla Hannon with James Milsom, executive produced by Miles Martignoni and Gabrielle Jackson.